In this time period that has been defined by disruption on so many levels, we are living through the reimagining of so many things, how business is done, where money is spent, and maybe most importantly for so many of us, what we truly value and what we prioritize every single day. And this type of thinking is really playing out in the philanthropy world where existential questions and fundamental concerns just about how philanthropy is conducted have really now become a call to action. I'm excited to learn more with our guest today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inspired Investing. I'm your host, Claire Gola, Head of Foundation and Institutional Advisory at Bernstein. This podcast is where we strive to connect and share insights with listeners like you who are engaged in the nonprofit and broader philanthropy sector or who just want to learn more. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Alan Davis, who is the president of the Leonard and Sophie Davis Fund and also the chair of the Crisis Charitable Commitment. Alan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Claire, for inviting me. So I was thrilled when we were introduced recently and I learned a little bit more about your work. So I'm going to jump right into this. I'm going to provide some context. I promise there is a question in there. So over the last year, right, as the pandemic spread and tragedies unfolded into this national reckoning around racial justice and racial equity, so many foundations and philanthropists felt this urgency to step up, right, quote unquote, step up. And what does that mean? What are other foundations doing? We had so many questions like this. We ended up doing a webinar with Exponent Philanthropy. We published blogs. One was titled um, Donating When There's a Need for Speed for Individual Donors. Another one was titled Four Things Grantees Wish Granters Knew Now, (laughs) mostly about general operating funds. But all of this emphasized, right, this is not a time for business as usual. It was so impressive to see that your foundation was so agile, dramatically increasing your spend from an already significant 8% to 12%. And I think you did this in like two months and you didn't stop there. So can you tell us a little bit more about the events of 2020, how these events really drove you to reimagine the giving paradigm? Sure. Well, we make our grants early in the year. So we thought we had made our grants for 2020 in January and February of that year. Then the pandemic hit And it was a crisis like no other that we'd seen. So, you know, exacerbated by racial justice issues in a very controversial election that was unfolding. So we went from a $12 million grant making budget to $18 million in a matter of two months, a 50% increase. Keep in mind, this was done while the market was crashing. So we were taking a big risk, but as a charitable foundation, we felt it was something we had to do. Tell me a little bit more about that. It's a family foundation, which I run full-time without staff other than an assistant. So those two months were as difficult as any I had experienced, especially when we, as a rule, do not do direct service grants, which were needed to respond to the crisis. Fortunately, I was able to rely on two consultants and as well as program officers at two community foundations to figure out how we could best meet the need. When we finished the process, it was like, So what? Like, what difference did we make? So I wondered how other foundations were responding. And I was hearing how foundations, despite being 100 times larger than us, were increasing their grant making by not much more than we did. So that led in July, actually on Bastille Day, uh, which we thought was appropriate to launch. (laughs) Yeah, really. To launch the crisis charitable commitment. 
So help me unpack that a little bit. And basically, we had three goals. One was to give recognition to other philanthropists who were stepping up to the plate, to encourage others who hadn't done so yet to do so. And third, to begin to establish a benchmark for the donor class as to what is an appropriate percentage of assets, whether it be personal or that of a private foundation, to give the how much question. That's what we're trying to do. And then at a high level, the crisis charitable commitment, the aim is to get more dollars, right? More funding to charitable organizations by really challenging the conventional wisdom on how much to give. Maybe you could talk with us a little bit about that approach to philanthropy that tends to inform most conversations in your view. Well, there are three questions that uh, foundation executives or philanthropists ask themselves or should ask themselves, which is where to give, how to give, and how much to give. And they tend to answer those questions in that order Mm. and almost never get to the question of how much. They also kind of rely on the mantra, which is never touch capital. Mm -hmm. So in the case of a private foundation, that means give at the IRS required 5% level. So we're trying to get people to ask the how much question. And to answer that question, we turned to some prominent guideposts last year. We looked at the giving pledge, which is mm-hmm. uh, the one where billionaires pledge to give away half of their wealth. Uh, second was there was draft legislation called the Emergency Charitable Stimulus Bill that was floating around that called for a three-year requirement of a 10% payout for donor-advised funds and private foundations. There was also a, an effort called One for Democracy, which asked donors to give 1% of their assets to support voting rights and other election-related efforts. Mm. And uh, the fourth guidepost was the wealth tax proposals that had been floating around. So we used those guideposts and we came up with what we call the charitable standard. So interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about the charitable standard? The charitable standard is divided into the three categories, donor-advised funds, flat 10% payout for private foundations, it's 6% up to $50 million. And $50 million, by the way, represents about 98% of all foundations, and then 10% above that. And for individuals, it's a sliding scale ranging from 1% up to the first $50 million, 2% up to $150 million, and up to 5% for those lucky enough to have $25 billion or more. So we have 105 signatories, foundations, and individuals who met what we call this charitable standard. And if any of your listeners think that they met the standard in 2020 and would like to sign on, that would be terrific. And they should go to charitablecommitment.org. That's great. Thanks, Alan. You just gave us a lot of information. Um, One question I have before we move forward is how does the membership or how do the people that have signed on really break out? Is it mostly private foundations, mostly individuals, or is it a pretty donor advised funds, or is it a mix? It's a pretty even mix. Uh, it's a, a, yeah, about yeah, about a third each uh, each okay. category. Yeah, great. So, not surprisingly, uh, being from Bernstein, I want to dig into the math a little bit. <laughs> so, because that's what we I do, right? I'm yeah. a numbers person. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> and I won't even go nearly as far as some of my colleagues would. But I have to ask first. So, many people. I'm curious about the feedback on the charitable standard across the industry, because many people and Bernstein in some cases would say that those payout rates are just not sustainable, right? What you've laid out, that 6% even maybe is is not sustainable. And so help us unpack a little bit on your assumptions and, and, and how you came to these numbers. 
Sure. So first off, I should point out that our standard is for the what we call the crisis period, which we're thinking of as three years. So 2021 and 22, hopefully we'll be beyond the crisis after that. After 2022, we would think that the numbers we're proposing would come down a little bit and we'd go back to 5% for the first 50 million and 9% above that. So that would mean that a $100 million foundation would have an average payout of 7%. And our guesstimate, and of course, Obviously, nobody knows, but our guesstimate is that well-managed money could achieve returns that would allow them to have a 7% payout in perpetuity. Now, there's a big question about whether perpetuity is really the goal here. And I think that for smaller, but what one would call smaller foundations, like the $100 million and less category, mm-hmm. perpetuity might be okay. You know, I can imagine families wanting to have their children or even grandchildren have the opportunity to be philanthropic. The problem we have right now is tremendous inequality in the foundation world. So we have 0.1% of the foundations have 40% of all the assets. In other words, there's 100 foundations that have 40% of all foundation assets. So if we leveled the playing field a bit, even in philanthropy. Um, I think we'd all be better off. And that's partly how we structured the, that's why we have the $50 million break. And this is one of the problems when you see studies that are being done about foundation returns, they conflate all foundations. You know, again, 98% foundations have less than $50 million. Well, they have a different experience than that top 0.1%. Does. Yeah, and, absolutely. And that's been borne out by a recent study by the Council on Foundations, and along with Common Fund Institute, where they've shown that the returns are fairly dramatically different among different size foundations. So, for example, they broke the categories into foundations over 500 million, 100 to 500, and less than 100 million. For over 500 million in 2020, they had returns of 16.1%. The group from 100 million to 500 million had returns of 13.1%. And the group under 100 million had returns of 11.6%. Those differences will make a big difference if you have a certain payout benchmark. And I think a lot of it has to do with asset allocation. So the Council of Michigan Foundations put out a report where they were projecting 10 years into the future and saying that there's no way that foundations are going to be able to sustain a 5% payout. But what they used for their asset allocation was 50% equities, 25% fixed income, and 25% global equities. Whereas the Council on Foundations, the Common Fund, their asset allocation is 25% equities, 9% fixed, 17% global, and then 45% alternative investments. Yeah. That makes quite a difference in your your returns. It does, right? Depending on the time period, it does too. I'm thrilled that you brought up the sort of disparity across, you know, the different types of uh, investments that the different size institutions are invested in, and also the disparity in terms of the different projections, right? So I think there are two gaps here. You know, the first I want to touch on is the forward-looking return assumptions, because as you mentioned, a rate of return of about 7%, right? So the assumption behind this. So if you look back, interestingly, over the last decade, 
from 2011 to 2020, interestingly, a 70% global stock, so that includes U.S. and you know international emerging markets, global stock portfolio and 30% taxable bonds, right? Sort of a standard publicly traded markets type of portfolio. That portfolio actually returned 8.7% annualized. And so those are pretty strong returns on an annualized basis for public markets. Plus inflation was really, really low. If you actually subtracted out or accounted for inflation there, the annualized return was probably in that 7% ballpark, right? That you're talking about in terms of the forward-looking returns. But here's the thing, as we know, you know, after a decade of really strong equity returns and low inflation and declining interest rates, the story for publicly traded assets, right, looking ahead is very different as well. And I think you're absolutely right that the larger institutions out there, the very largest institutions have a much higher percentage by and large in private investments than smaller investors. They don't have to take the roller coaster ride, right? The whims and the fears of the publicly traded markets that others do. And so they don't. We see this with wealthy investors across the board. However, a number of smaller institutions, there are opportunities to invest differently. There are more and more as the capital markets, you know, sort of adjust and change. There are opportunities out there for foundations to do things differently from an investment perspective. Many just haven't gotten there yet. I think folks are allocated in a certain way now because it's just how we have been. And our argument to investors out there, both institutional and otherwise, is you really need to look at how you've been invested historically, if you have been very, very heavily in the publicly traded markets, and think about where you can incorporate different sources of both risk and return going forward so that you can sustain, to your point earlier, you can sustain that 5% plus, you know, in terms of the payout. You know, Nakubo, the National um, Association of College and University Business Officers, does a similar you know, report every year on asset allocation, among, among other things. And while they're not foundations, you know, there's a parallel there because the billion-dollar-plus institutions, in this case, reported 60% of their portfolios, right? We're in a combination of private equity, venture equity, other marketable alternatives, you know, real assets, like think like natural resources. They had 30% in publicly traded equities, right? And 10% in bonds. Those under 100 million reported just under 60% in publicly traded equities, 30% in bonds, and roughly 10% in sort of that combination of other alternatives. So we absolutely see the difference in return potential ahead. Even though looking in the rearview mirror, if you were just invested in the publicly traded markets, you in all likelihood probably did okay. The big shift is coming forward. So I would just say that there is an opportunity. I think maybe your assumptions around returns may be a little high, right? A little high versus what we would uh, you know, project. That being said, they're completely unreasonable if many, many foundations don't do things very, very differently, right, in terms of their asset allocation. Well, I totally agree with you, but I think it's important to keep in mind that it's a concern if the bottom line is we have to maintain our assets in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Because basically what we're suggesting is that there might be some risk that you won't have the same real dollar value in assets 40 years from now as you do now. But frankly, so what? Right. What is the real downside here? Keep in mind that the donors to a foundation or a donor advice fund, they've already gotten the tax deduction. They were given uh, support from the government in order to be charitable. But if the money doesn't go to the charities, 
I'd say it's not charitable yet. So I think there's very little downside in the kind of numbers we're talking about. I think you're right. But if you think about it, 10 years ago, we could have been having the same conversation. In fact, think about 2020. I mean, I, I remember what April looked like in 2020. And here we are giving away all this money and we're looking at the stock market collapsing. And I'm thinking, well, this is going to change things. But obviously it came roaring yeah. back. So yeah, what we're proposing definitely challenges investment managers and foundation managers, but I don't think the risk is really very great. You make a really good point around, I see perpetuity as another kind of just rule of thumb or sort of part of the paradigm that people have, you know, sort of that knee jerk, like, well, of course a foundation is a perpetuity, right? And does that really have to be, right? And do, do you really have to adhere to that over time? We're having this conversation at a foundation where I'm on the board of directors really thinking about, you know, if we continue to spend more than 5%, which we have done historically, we're not going to increase in all likelihood our inflation adjusted balance of our portfolio year in, year out. But is that okay? We're looking at that, right? For the first time that this institution has ever looked at it. And it's important. You know, I appreciate it. I'm curious uh, to hear more from you on, on the perpetuity thought. Well, I think there's a question of like, why perpetuity? One answer has been that you want your children or grandchildren, I guess, to have the experience of being philanthropic. I, I understand that. But if the argument is we've been doing this a long time, so we're better at grant making, there's absolutely no evidence to support that. I mean, I would actually argue the opposite is probably true. So it's not a quality of grant making that makes it, it's not like, oh, we've learned from experience, but there's the argument of the rainy day argument. Like, okay, we just had the rainy day. It's, I mean, we, we're talking about raining cats and dogs, right? We had, mm -hmm. it's like putting your thumb in a dike. Like which crisis am I going to try to address? Is it going to be climate or racial justice or whatever? But yeah, there'll be future rainy days, but it's not like there isn't going to be any money to deal with those rainy days. There's $12 trillion right now in the hands of the 0.1% in this country, mm -hmm. $12 trillion. A lot of that money is going to end up in foundations or donor-advised funds, and that money will be able to address the rainy days in the future. I mean, we have a perfect yeah. example. Look at Mackenzie Scott. This didn't exist. Two years ago, right? All of a sudden, Absolutely. she's the you know the largest donor in America. Changing the paradigm and yeah. changed the paradigm. Boy, she did it quickly, extremely quickly and mm -hmm. effectively. I, I would challenge any legacy foundation to say they do a better job than she did in her grant making. So you mentioned you know sort of newer grant makers, individuals who are newer to philanthropy. So that brings up donor advised funds, um, and clearly there's you know there's bipartisan support for the ACE Act, right? That we're looking at now. Donor advised funds have absolutely been a target, right? In terms of you know sort of legislators thinking about is this a way you know for us to start to move some additional charitable dollars to the end game <laughs> that they were intended to be a part of. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on on that. I'm concerned that it, it doesn't do very much with regard to private foundations. And I'm a follow the money type person. So donor advised funds have $120 billion in total. Private foundations have $1.2 trillion. So if you really wanted to get money out to nonprofits, which is what was intended, you could imagine a 2% increase in the foundation payout 
would be equivalent to a 20% payout for donor advised funds. So yeah. my go-to place would be, let's fix the private foundation payout. Yeah. I mean, we see the role for donor advised funds. We use them all the time as wealth advisors for wealth creators, right? People who are earning, you know, significantly, they might have lumpy income, whatever, you know, from one year to the next. It's a fantastic way for folks who haven't really had the time or the wherewithal yet to focus on their philanthropy to move assets into a charitable vehicle in the most tax efficient way and build that up. And maybe there are causes and and institutions they want to support along the way, but it really is a way, I see it as sort of a gateway to philanthropy, almost part of that kind of like democratization, you know, of philanthropy, because the levels are much lower as well. The barriers to entry are much lower. My one concern with the ACE Act is that by placing restrictions on donor advised funds right off the bat, you're going to discourage folks from gifting to these entities in the first place. I'm still struggling with that. So we've covered a lot of ground today, uh, walking through the largest foundations to emerging donor advised funds, looking at the sort of paradigm of how business is done in philanthropy and seeing this as an opportunity to, to change that in many ways and looking at the effects or the impacts for different size institutions. One way that we're seeing a number of foundations invest differently today uh, in terms of getting more dollars, at least aligning more dollars with their mission and vision and values is through how they invest that 95%, not necessarily how much they're giving, but how they're investing that corpus. And responsible investing happens to be the fastest growing part of our investment platform at Bernstein, and we are not alone. You know, as a wrap up, Alan, what are your thoughts on responsible investing and how that integrates into the portfolio? Yeah, well, the Common Fund Institute points out that 20% of foundation executives are now thinking about SRI or ESG investing. So it's a hugely growing field. Our foundation, we've been doing social investing for almost 50 years, which kind of shows my age. But I think we've had pretty good returns over that time. So it's not an issue. It's it's never really been an issue of sacrificing returns to put your money where your values are. And there's so many ways to do that. There are plenty of opportunities for investors. They do their homework. It will pay off for everybody. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. And and thank you very much for the work that you're doing. I appreciate it. It's been great to have you here. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more on Bernstein's Foundation and Institutional Advisory Services, please see the link to our blogs in this episode's description. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please go to the iTunes store, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and rate us. Also, please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com and be sure to find us on Twitter at BernsteinPWF. PWF.